Well, good afternoon, brethren. I thought we'd have uh, fewer people here. This is vacation time, but we have usually one or two or three sneak in late, so we probably have 250, Mr. League announced, of course, 249, but we're right at 250 anyway, so that's a wonderful crowd for a midsummer Sabbath, as we might call it. Welcome to any guests who may be here. We're very glad to have you and hope you stay around later for our snacks. And I appreciate the fine sermonette we had today, outstanding, actually, from Dr. Scott Winnale and the wonderful points he gave out of Dr. Fall's booklet. And I agree with him. You certainly ought to read that booklet. That is the best booklet, I think, about child rearing we've ever had. We had, uh, I mean, in the entire Church of God, we had one back in Worldwide Church of God that was not near as well thought out and not as deep. But his booklet is an excellent booklet, and I'm glad that we have that resource because it's just very, very helpful. I'm thankful that we have had fine growth in the work, and we've had excellent TV responses even during the summer, and we're, we're grateful for that. We're very grateful we're going on, many of you remember this, but we're going on the Black Entertainment Network, BET, this coming Tuesday, just about three more days, Tuesday at, uh, I think, at 6.30 in the morning, Please pray about that, brethren. Please pray. That's a wonderful new opportunity. We do want to reach our black brethren around the world and around the nation. But frankly, as you know, there are hundreds of thousands, probably many millions of white, especially young people who love the, the music and the sports and the stuff they have. And we need to reach them. Some of that is not good, as it is not good on every TV next work, but we need to reach them where they are. And if that's where they are, that's where we want to reach them. So we hope that that will be a big door to help us reach more of the world with the message of God. So we're grateful for that growth that God is giving us. We've had good growth in the campaigns and the good response, and we've had very good growth in the Internet. A number of new Internet uh, programs are going forward to increase our impact there. We thank God for that. Please pray about that. As you know, that is the biggest single tool, potentially, because it can get into China and India and the Middle East, behind behind the Muslim curtain, as they may call it, where we can't even get on with television. So we certainly need to increase the power of our Internet, and we're very grateful that Mr. Wyatt Saselka and the entire team are doing such a fine job And I do thank God for them. We do have a wonderful team here, brethren. And I'd like to say that again to you here and to all the brethren around the world who may be uh, hearing this. The one who's going to start out our program on, it didn't, I don't think it was planned way ahead, but God probably guided it. Uh, Mr. Richard Ames' program is playing this week, and I'm sure that's going to be the one. And he brings in more responses than any of us. And so we're grateful that his program on prophecy is the first one uh, that's going to be played on the Black Entertainment Network. And he's been a wonderful, wonderful help and vice president in the work of God, helping me in so many ways, very, very loyally and continually. Dr. Winnale, uh, uh, I was trying to say Scott, and of course it's his father, Doug Winnale, and Scott blocked in my mind there. Don't want to blot out Scott, but, but Dr. Douglas Winnale has been a wonderful help in church administration. And he's over conducting, I think, a little campaign somewhere today, but he'll be going soon to Australia and New Zealand and Southeast Asia. And I'm very grateful for him. One of the new top members on our team, of course, that I am very, very grateful for is Mr. Dexter Wakefield. I think God worked it out where he came up here. We swiped him out of Florida. Then we put Mr. Soselka in there for a few weeks or a few months, about seven months. Then we swiped him out of Florida. And people down there are saying, what's going on? So I think I need to assure you, brethren in Florida who hear this, we plan to keep Mr. John Strain there a long time. <laughs> I talked to him the other day. He likes it. And uh, we, he has not some special technical thing like these other men have. So we hope to leave him there. But Mr. Wakefield has been a wonderful help for, to our headquarters team as well. So we do have a wonderful team and so many others here doing a very, very great job. And we are grateful for the growth that God is giving us. And it looks like we're poised for greater growth than we've ever had in the next few months. A lot of you probably sense that. I certainly do. And I'm very thankful to God for that. Well, brethren, 
The kingdom of God is coming soon. Most of us realize that. Much of Europe is in turmoil. They don't know where the eurozone will even survive. They don't know whether the euro, their currency, will survive. They don't know whether Britain will leave or not. They don't know what's going to happen in the Middle East. They don't know what's going to happen in North Africa. Those nations are all in, in turmoil right now as we're speaking. People are being bombed and, and, and butchered by the thousands in various parts of Syria and some of these other Middle Eastern countries. And Africa is upset. So many people there, as you know, literally hundreds of thousands, even as I speak, are in danger of starvation. And uh, we are in a world that's really upset. They're having a terrible drought in parts of India. And they said that millions are in danger of starvation there right now, more than normal. Around the world, things are upset. In the United States, we're having unusually hot weather and they're worried about the crops because of that. These things are occurring just as Jesus Christ said they would. Christ is coming soon. So we need to ask ourselves, are we really getting ready? My brethren, what will you be doing in the next several years if you make it into the kingdom of God? What will you personally be doing? Why are you called now rather that in the great white throne judgment, most of my friends that I grew up with are out there in the world, or many have died, of course, and there never have been God's church. Where are they going to be? They'll be in the great white throne judgment. But why did God call you and me now? Think about that. What, why did he do that? Well, we know, and Mr. Armstrong has answered, and we've talked about it with him and others in ministerial meetings. First of all, we're called now, those of us in this room and you brethren around the world hearing this, to help get out the gospel. We're to preach the good news of the coming kingdom of God as a witness to the whole world. And we're certainly to give the Ezekiel warning, warning people about the coming great tribulation. But secondly... And the thing I'm going to talk about, we're called now rather than later on in order to have a people of God prepared to be those kings and priests in tomorrow's world. That is what you're going to be doing in a few years. Are you preparing for that? Do you think about that? Is that a thing that you think about regularly? Right after Christ's coming, what are you going to be doing probably for the next 1,100 years, 1,100 solid years on this earth when you count the millennium and the great white throne judgment period coming just after that. So we want to really think about that reality and prepare for it. Think, are you really preparing for that responsibility? How should you prepare? What should you be doing? Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 3 now. Let's see what your Bible says. Acts chapter 3, if you would turn there, and most of you know where I'm going to turn. Acts 3 and beginning verse 19. Peter said, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken of by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. He spoke about the times of restoration. And as you know, throughout the Bible, he talks about Christ coming back. He talks about a ruler who will rise up and rule over Israel. He talks about the fact that God will write his laws in our hearts and minds and inward parts in the coming kingdom of God. Prophecy after prophecy, hundreds of them, actually, when you take the different verses in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the way through the minor prophets, that's the major theme when you think about it and put all these prophecies together about tomorrow's world and what's going to happen. And certainly I would encourage us to want to get ready for that. A time of restoration. It's going to be the restoration, as Mr. Armstrong said so often, of the government of God. A lot of people are very discouraged right now here in America. They're without jobs. Some of them are losing hope. They don't trust the present administration at all. And they don't even trust the opposite power at all, the opposite party. They don't know who to vote for. They're very confused, very hurt. Who would Jesus vote for? 
Well, most of us know he would not be voting at all. He would not be in this world's politics. Our citizenship is in heaven from which the Lord Jesus Christ shall bring our reward, as it says there in Philippians 3. Some people get confused when you see our citizenship is in heaven. He doesn't say it's going to stay there. Right in that very passage, it says from which Christ is going to bring our citizenship, our reward back here to this earth. But our citizenship, our ultimate loyalty is to that government. That's the government we've got to be thinking about. That's the government we've got to be learning. That's the government we need to be practicing now. That's the government we need to be preparing for. So we need to think about that. Restoration of all things, it involves the right kind of government. It involves the entire way of life. It involves the way of the Creator and family life, which we just heard about from the wonderful points brought out from Dr. Fall's booklet. The way of life of religion, the right religion affecting every part of our lives. It affects the educational system. What kind of educational system will there be in tomorrow's world? It involves the media. What kind of media? Are they going to have all these sex shows and violent shows? Most of you know that. But most of us don't fully understand how clever the world is in undermining God's way through the media over and over and over again. What kind of media, what kind of entertainment will we have at that time? And what about the various parts of health? The world gets mixed up. Mr. Armstrong used to say the two great areas that most people get up on, mixed up on are, first of all, religion and also health. Some people want to eat, you know, uh, dried peas and that's all. Or they'll have a grape diet and just eat grapes. Or they'll have a bunch of pills out of a bottle and that's about half their diet. Some go to extreme. Others say, oh, I don't need all that stuff. And they go ahead and eat whatever comes out of McDonald's or whatever. (laughs) You see what I mean? Those are the two extremes. God is not extreme in either direction. But we need to be learning that way of life now so we can teach it in tomorrow's world. And I think it's good that we try to learn the laws of health and the ways of health. I wrote a booklet years ago, published for several years in the Worldwide Church, The Seven Laws of Radiant Health. And one of the smart aleck young men who left the church, he wrote a whole book on it, and he took my exact, I mean my exact points and the exact order of those points and simply got newspaper clippings and clippings out of, you know, Prevention Magazine and other things like that and made it into a book. And I kidded him. I said, well, Bill, how do you at least give me my 10%, you know, how to get a tithe? Well, of course, he didn't do that. But those basic laws of health are very important. And some of you people who don't think, I'm kidding you now, but if you say, well, you're not very healthy, okay, I'm 82 years old. Let's see how healthy you are at 82. You may not even be here, all right? So anyway, I did pretty good for 78 years, and then the stroke hit me at that time. And my dad died of the stroke at age 67, so I've outlived my father by 15 years, even though he had a stroke and died when he was only 67. But those laws work. Those laws work. You need to learn the laws of health and be able to teach them as a way of life. The laws of mental health as well. It's not what you're eating, as they sometimes say. It's what's eating you. And you need to learn the right approach and have a positive approach to life and teach that way of life and that approach even in tomorrow's world. All these areas of life, we ought to try to learn from God's point of view, so we can teach that whole way of life to the cities or maybe the entire nations that may be under us later. We really need to do that, brethren. It's a very realistic thing. It's going to happen, and many of us may not be fully ready. In Luke chapter 19, turn with me to Luke 19, verse 11. Jesus here was speaking As they heard these things, Jesus spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. They thought Christ was going to come and kick out the Roman armies and set up a government right there. They didn't understand. So Jesus said, a certain nobleman, you know the story, went to a far country to receive a kingdom. He gave his servants uh, ten minas, each one a mina, and said, do business till I come, a measure of money. When he came back, why then, having received the kingdom, he commanded the servants to, he had given the money 
to see how he, much he'd uh, gained, how much each man had gained. It's a lesson, obviously, or a parable. God gives you and me a certain amount of time. He gives us a certain amount of talent. He gives us a certain amount of ability. He gives some of us more money than others, more influence on others because of our personality. Each of us has certain strengths over others. But he wants us to use that strength, that time, that energy, that talent, every way we can to help other human beings and every way we can to prepare for his coming kingdom. So when he came back, he wanted to know how much each one had gained. And then came the first, verse 16. He said, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. I've increased what you gave me ten times. I have used my strength, my money, my personality, my training to help bring in, you know, hundreds of people into the kingdom of God. Or I've helped strength, strengthen people in other ways as a member of the church through my prayers, my personal influence, helping them, going out to see them, encouraging them, building them in tithes and offerings. I've built my family, a strong family, strong children to add to the church. Many other things you could show how you've increased what God gave you. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little. And brethren, whatever we have in this life is very, very, very little compared to what we're going to have in tomorrow's world. Most of you know that, but it's really good to think about that. Wow, what are we going to have then when we're spirit beings? We won't get old like I am. We won't get a stroke. We won't get tired. We won't run down. We'll be vibrant with energy. And our mental and physical energy will surge forward and help teach people the truth all over this earth. We will be spirit beings, of course, and have that capacity at that time to help them. So he said, be over ten cities. And the second came, Master, your mina has earned five minas. And he said, you also be over five cities. So reward was ruling. And we know, brethren, that we're called to be kings and priests, or a kingdom of priests, it's sometimes translated. So we're going to be rulers, but we're also going to be teachers. Moses was that example. He was like a king in a certain way, and yet he was teaching them God's ways. Remember the story back in Exodus 19 where his father-in-law was there and he saw Moses was overdoing and trying to solve every problem. He says, you better appoint, not elect, not vote. God's way of government is not by voting. And we have to understand that and have faith in God. But at any rate, he said, appoint capable men and have them do this for you. And then the heart send the hard cases to me. But also his father-in-law said, okay, you go ahead and you make these big decisions, then you can teach the people God's way. So Moses taught the people God's way, and then he had to make the decisions, overall big decisions that came to him, but he had to appoint others to do the actual ruling in local uh, areas, provinces, or cities under him, and they had to make smaller decisions, and only the major decisions came to him. It was a whole system of government, based on what God's direction was, and that was the pattern for God's government all the way through the Bible. We see David, the man of God, did the same thing. And we see that Jesus Christ did the same thing. He appointed others under him in the work. We see that Paul told even Timothy or Titus, the evangelist, in Titus chapter 1, appoint local elders in every city as I commanded you. He didn't say, as I suggested, <laughs> he said, as I commanded, you appoint local elders in every city and have them carry on. We need to learn the government of God. We need to have faith that God's word is inspired and that that is the way the whole world will be governed in tomorrow's world. If men vote for something, they don't even always know what they're voting for. Most of you know that. Some of the politicians of recent times have come right out of the woodwork and we didn't even know who they were and suddenly they appeared. People don't fully know what they stand for until they're in the office. And, of course, they're not called by God. It's not their fault. They don't know how to rule. And so, therefore, our taxes are going to go up. Our national debt is going to go up. Our dollar is going to drop in value, and we are going to go down. And unless we repent as a nation, we will take and be taken into the greatest national slavery in human history. And that's coming upon us. 
because we have had a wrong government and because we have had a wrong way of life and because we have turned away from God. Our religious leaders have failed us. Our educational leaders have failed us. And as Dr. Scott Winnell mentioned, what are they teaching? We don't always know what they're teaching our kids. They're all mixed up with the theory of evolution and all of the corollaries that flow from that. And, of course, our politicians have failed us. They don't know the way of God. They can't teach that. But in tomorrow's world, we ought to prepare ourselves so that with the help of God, we can do that and teach that way of life. That's so important. So Jesus showed our future. We will be ruling and teaching five cities or ten cities, as the case may be. Now turn it with me, if you would, at this point to Revelation chapter 2, brethren. Revelation chapter 2. Now this is very familiar territory, but Jesus Christ is speaking directly. Christ is speaking directly in verse 26. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, the overcomers, to him will I give power over the nations. We will have power. We will be rulers. He shall rule them. This is not Christ. This is the overcomer. He, the overcomer, shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessel shall be broken in pieces, as I also, Christ is going to do this too, as I also receive from my Father. So we're going to rule with authority. But we've got to be filled with God's Word and have God's mind in order to know how to do that and be sure that we are saturating our minds with this book. I know most of you young people and some of you newer people, it's hard to think about that, but you think about what the servants of God must have done in the time past. I remember seeing this movie, I forget what the name of it was now, but it was about the Hasidic Jews in New York and how they drilled and drilled and drilled on their scriptures and were able to recite it. But you could see the Apostle Paul must have done that. And the people back at that time who were faithful Jews did do that. They didn't have the Bible in print. They had to memorize it from just a scroll. But they knew whole vast sections of the Bible by heart. And they were familiar with it. They made it part of their being. Brethren, that's what you and I ought to do. It's not nicey-nice. It gives us the mind of God. It gives us the way God thinks about marriage. If it's exciting, let's use the word sex. It's the way God thinks about sex. (laughs) All right? God made sex. He wants sex. His first command to Adam and Eve was not to go hide somewhere, but be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. He has laws and ways described through the whole Bible about the right use of marriage, the right use of sex, the right use of our minds in every aspect of life, family, child-rearing, Good food, bad food, circumcision, the way of life. People are having these different arguments. The Germans are trying to banish circumcision because it's Jewish. Right now, there have been many articles on that. And yet there have been many other articles showing how this old barbaric practice, as people are trying to say, call it quite often, is saving literally tens or hundreds of thousands of lives in Africa because they find that the men there that are not circumcised are whatever it is, three times or ten times more likely to get disease than those that are not circumcised. Now, they ought to just repent and have one wife. I know that. But since they don't, they need to be circumcised. And it's a health law for other reasons, too. Things that the modern scientists and doctors used to think were foolish were just old Jewish customs. They're now coming to find out we're not that way at all. They are a revelation from the one who wrote this book. They are a revelation for the one who made our bodies, who made our minds, who made our emotional reactions in the way we are. And when you read this book, you get that in every phase of life. So you could think like God. We're going to have to teach that in tomorrow's world. And so we need to realize how real it is and how it affects the lives. Literally, it's a life or death thing in parts of Africa and other parts of the world, too. For they do not circumcise, they get more diseases, even between men and women, and certainly between men and men, and it's even more awful. Back in Revelation chapter 5, it talks about the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. So here's the song of the saints, Revelation chapter 5. 
And they sang a new song saying, You, Christ, are worthy to take the scroll to open the seals, for you are slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. God, through Christ, has redeemed himself, every human being, potentially, if we will accept Christ when our time comes, and have made us, the saints, kings and priests. So we are made to be kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign, not up in heaven, we shall reign on the earth. This is where the billions of human beings are going to be, and they're the ones we've got to teach. They're the ones we've got to help. So we want to think in detail, how can we do that? Are we doing that? I want to come back to this. You said you said some of these things before. Yes, I have, and I'll keep on doing it. I'm not going to talk about it every week like Mr. Armstrong did the true trees when he got older. But two or three times a year, we need to come back to this because that's what you're going to be doing for the next 1,100 years. And I hope that you can really understand that and be preparing. Now, 1 Corinthians, if you turn there with me, brethren, 1 Corinthians, and let's turn at this point to 1 Corinthians in chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 1, Paul writes under God's inspiration, Dare any of you having a matter against another? You have some legal problem? Well, you do. The first thing you do is rush out to a worldly lawyer. Is that what a Christian ought to do, especially if it involves another Christian? Do you dare you go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? What's the implication? The implication is that the saints of God, the people of God, ought to know the mind of God. They must know increasingly the mind of God. And you would get better judgment by going to that source, as God tells you to do. And, for instance, Matthew chapter uh, 18, verse 15, if you have a matter, an upset, go to your brother. If he won't listen, take another with you. If he won't hear them, then take it to the church. And the example was not that you say, well, Mr. Lee, can I make the announcements uh, for today? I want to attack this guy and tell about he's hurt me. You take it to the leadership of the church. And they help render a decision as to what should be done. That's God's government. That's the mind of God. Some people in the church say, I don't know about that. Well, if you don't know about that, brethren, and you don't know about the willingness to teach your children the way God says, God says back in Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up your child in the way he should go. And when he is old, or even when he's old, he won't depart from it. It isn't every word of God, but he will have a general way of life, of love and decency and so on. And that is normally the way. He didn't say they'll all be called into the church, but they'll basically have basically a good and decent way of life. They'll have been instilled with a certain degree of character from childhood on up. But some people don't want to do this. God says, discipline your children. And modern psychologists and a lot of modern even lawyers and judges say, you don't dare discipline your children. Well, they're against God. You have to decide, do you really believe the Word of God is inspired? Are you going to let your boy run wild and sass you and even kick you in the shins or something, as I did my dad one day? I kicked my shins, my dad in the shins. I was just a little guy, five or six years old, and it brought blood. And I saw the blood kind of drain out of my father's face and thought, oh, trouble is coming. He said, let's go down to the basement. I thought, oh, big trouble is coming. And he whipped me to, with a whipping I've never forgot to this day. And I, it was good for me. He didn't try to kill me, but he, he, made, he impressed the lesson. And he started from the bottom up, okay? <laughs> it was good for me. And uh, I remember I've heard Mr. Carl McNair and maybe his children, I think Mr. Rod McNair is here, some of his family may have heard this, but Carl McNair and Tony Hammer, Tony Hammer was Ted Armstrong's brother-in-law, and uh, Tony Hammer were both about the same size and same age, and I heard them kidding back and forth a couple different times. They kind of bragged. They each had a real strong father figure. You know, the Hammers had nine children, and Carl Monaire's father had eight children, and they had to keep order when you have that many, five or six boys in a family. 
And actually, they were not mad at their father for whipping them with the belt or whatever. They they were bragging about which father could get his belt off the fastest. My father could get the belt off so fast you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> Whale on her rear ends. Oh, the modern psycho, oh, you're going to hurt the poor little thing. You'll hurt his self-esteem. You better hurt his self-esteem. You better wake him up. To save him from a horrible way of life later if you do not take care of the child when he's young. But the modern way, they say, well, circumcision, that's an old barbaric practice and the little boy cries and how awful. And he sometimes cries when his diapers change or mother sticks him with a pen or something like that and changing the diapers. And, goes, ah! and then right away he stops crying and uh, she nurses him. His mother's there and nurses him or does something else. He forgets it very, very quickly. Nothing terrible, awful about it. But it will help him stay out of trouble in a number of ways from disease the rest of his natural life because God said so. My brethren, I am preaching to you, but I want to do this because we have people in this church right here, I'm sure, in this congregation, and we have people around the world, some of you out there in uh, TV land that are hearing this. You don't fully believe God. You really don't. You think, well, I know better than God on child rearing. I have a better idea. I don't believe really God on circumcision. I don't really believe God in tithing. God says if you don't give him a tenth of your increase, then you are stealing from your creator. Well, I don't know. And blah, 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 blah. goes on and on. You have reasons. You reason around what is here right in this book inspired by God Almighty. Do you believe God? Frankly, brethren, God is going to bring on our nation the greatest national tribulation that has ever hit, probably in human history. Jesus indicated that. It's not going to be fun. And we will go through the first part of it. And some of it will not be fun. But it may humble people, shake people, even in our church and in other branches of God's church, where people will realize, wow, God is really doing these things. Maybe I better straighten up. If God is not blessing you and God is not guiding you and God is not whatever hearing your prayers, you might ask, why am, is he not doing that? If you're not obeying God by being willing to do whatever God says in this book, if you spend a lot of your time reasoning around, reasoning around what God clearly, clearly says in the Bible, how are you fit to rule as a king and priest in tomorrow's world. How would God dare put a whole nation under you if you say, yell, well, but? Well, yell, but. That's not the attitude of a Christian. It's the attitude of a Christian to say, thy will be done. I'm going to live by every word of God. I'm going to follow the way of God in this book. And God will bless any part of his church. He will bless any individual to the degree that he does this. Does that mean he will not let us get old like I am? No, I've told you before. God has blessed me very, very much. I don't want any excuses from you saying, well, you're not acting like you're 30 years old anymore. No, I'm not. But God has given me a wonderful life for 82 years, and I'm very grateful for it. So get off that attitude. You... Believe God. God will give you a wonderful life, a full life, an eternal life if you will learn to inculcate within your hearts and your minds this way of God, the way of God's way of entertaining without semi-dirty jokes and and uh, dirty pornographic pictures and TV and the Internet and all the other stuff. And, and the kind of a screaming and yelling type of stuff they call music, which is not music at all. People go, yeah! And they try to call that music. That is not music. That's hysteria. And we need, in the world tomorrow, that will not be. There will not be anything like that at all. There will have melody and harmony and beautiful things in music and in art and in literature. There will be a different way of life. And if you're willing to learn that way of life, and inculcate that way of life into your character, your life, the way you think, the way you act, the way you are, and God knows that you're doing that sincerely through His Holy Spirit in you, then He will put you over a whole city or a whole nation or maybe a whole planet in tomorrow's world. As you know, you've heard us explain, there now they find more planets in the universe than there are people 
billions of planets. And the universe seems to be getting bigger as they, they go out and discover more and more. They don't know where it ends. So think about that. You have an awesome, wonderful opportunity ahead if you'll just believe God. Believe that His way works. So go to the, those in authority in God's church. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That's our calling, he says then, here in the New Testament. Some people say, oh, this is just Old Testament stuff or from the book of Revelation. No, it's not. Right in here in the middle of the Apostle Paul's letter. The saints will judge the world, and you are unworthy, and the world will be judged by you. Are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? So we are called to judge in the church, and that's God's way. Well, I can't trust so-and-so. Some of you around headquarters, as it was in Pasadena, they said, well, Mr. Armstrong has some mistakes, or Mr. Meredith, whoever makes mistakes, so I can't trust them. Well, everybody makes mistakes. But you still have to put your trust in God and know that overall he will guide it because you will never find a human being, even in the Bible, look at the Bible accounts themselves, who did not make a mistake except Jesus Christ alone. You have to trust that God will make his way work. That involves faith in the God who gives you life and breath and the God of the Bible. So, do you not know that we shall judge angels? Chapter 3, verse 3. We shall judge angels. Even the angelic host will make decisions about where they'll go and things they will do once they're starting to directly serve us. How much more things that pertain to this life? Of course the church should make things, judgments, about divorce and remarriage or about problems between the brethren or about exactly where the feast ought to be held or when the feast begins or how to count Pentecost or whatever. If every Tom, Dick, and Harry rushes off and makes his own idea, makes his own decision, then what do you have? You have confusion, and God is not the author of confusion. So think about it, brethren. Think about this whole thing. Think, what do you actually do uh, now? How, how does what you do now show God that you will be as you will do as a leader in tomorrow's world? If he sees you now not trusting him in health laws, not trusting him in circumcising your baby boys, not trusting him in tithing, not trusting him in going to the church if you have an upset, and you're not trusting him here and you're not trusting him there, how can he know that you will carry out his way in tomorrow's world? He can't know that. He will not know that. Therefore, you will not be there at all, and God will let you go through the greatest tribulation in human history that's coming to wake you up, or else God will work with you and work with you and work with you before that, if you're willing, and help you get on board to where you will study this book, and you will say, I am going to let Christ rule my life. I'm going to put my genuine faith and trust in God and in His way and practice that in every aspect, then I can be better fit to carry it out in tomorrow's world. And that's in every aspect of life, of course. In marriage, remember we had a fine sermon on that recently, and uh, talks about Ephesians chapter 5. And Ephesians 5, it tells the husband, husbands, love your wives. Lay down your heart, your life for your wife. Serve her, help her, protect her, and so on, by inference all the way through. But wives, submit yourselves unto your husband as unto Christ. Do you do that, you wives? You're infected, some of you, with this modernist idea, liberalism. Well, here's what I think. So I could just argue, argue. Or if you really submitted to your wife, your husband, I mean, don't you think your marriage would be better? If you put your trust in God, it might not seem to be better the first time you do it. But in time, God shows you that that's the way it works. So you have to have faith in him and so on in every aspect of marriage and every aspect of child rearing, as we just heard in the sermonette. Very important. Have the mind of God in all those areas of life down to the smallest point. Dr. Maneo gave this uh, Deuteronomy 6. I want to read it again. You swipe one of my scriptures. Uh, <laughs> God. Anyway, that's all right. We'll use it again. 
sometimes our sermons overlap, which is good. They say repetition is the strongest form of emphasis. Back here in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the eternal our God, the eternal is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Each one of us has got to come to know to love God, to know that he is God, that he's there. He's our father. He made us in his image. He's working with us. He's fashioning us. He's molding us. So we're going to be his full sons in a few years in his kingdom and in his family. So we want to know that, to love him with all of our hearts. These words which I command you this day shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently, not half-heartedly, diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. As was pointed out in Dr. Nail's sermonette, that means all the time. Your family life is constantly revolving around the work of God, God's intervention in prophecy, and God's way of life and God's way works. Try to do that. None of us do it perfectly. I did not do it perfectly. Many of the knowledge, much of the knowledge of the details of this have come out through the years. But we all should try to do it much better. God wants us to teach our children this whole attitude, this whole way of life. Then back in Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel 36, and if you turn there, let's begin in verse 24, chapter 36 of Ezekiel. Notice what God just says here as he talks about our people, Israel. He says in verse 22, therefore, state of the house of Israel. And then he continues. And he says in verse 24, For I will take you from the, among the nations. This is the modern Americans and Britons who have gone off into slavery in a few years. Take you from among the nations. Gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you. This is not something that's happened before. It's going to happen in the next several years. Some of our neighbors are going to have this happen. and They'll come back weeping and repenting. They'll say, we wished we'd listened to tomorrow's world program. The older ones might say, we wish we'd listened to Mr. Armstrong. But they don't listen. They don't take it. They don't understand. And they're going to come back weak and repenting. They'll come back to their land. And so he says, I'm going to bring you back to your own land. And then I'll sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean. I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from your idols. I will put a new spirit in you a new heart and a new spirit and take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Brethren, I've often talked to you and I have given whole sermons on this, but please learn to read those scriptures back in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, God's statutes, a whole way of life. It's in the letter of the law but it gives us the detailed direction of the mind of God for a physical people. And many of those statutes are applicable, most of them, even in the letter today. And all of them are applicable in principle today to all of us. We should read them and know the mind of God. Circumcision is a statute, of course. The holy days are a statute. Tithing is a statute. It's all part of the statutes of God And at this time, when God brings our people back, he says he's going to put a new spirit within his people, and I will put my spirit within you, his Holy Spirit, and I, God, will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Is that what God wants? Of course he does. That's what he's going to teach all these people, his statutes. That way of life will have to be learned today by us. So we can teach it to those people in tomorrow's world who are told they're going to have to learn that. Now, brethren, turn, if you would, to Romans 14. Romans 14 in your New Testament here. And uh, let's begin reading in verse 20. Romans 14. Paul says, Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. He's been talking about those people who are vegetarians and those who eat meat and those who drink and those who don't and so on. Don't destroy, get upset at your brother because of things like that. All things indeed are pure, 
but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat or to drink wine, nor to do anything by which your brother is stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Now, we know it's not wrong to eat meat, and it's not wrong to drink wine, but learn to do those things in a way that do not offend your brother. If we start a new church in some backwoods city in India where, where they worship the sacred cow, and they think we'd be com- committing an abomination by eating meat, we shouldn't have them come in and have a big steak and just put that in front of them. We've got to be cons- uh, you know, sensitive to their needs at that moment. And put our faith in God that that's the best thing to do. Do you have faith? In other words, do you have faith that's okay to do this? Have it or exercise it, as some translations have it. Exercise it to yourself before God. If you know it's okay to drink wine in moderation, do that before God, but not before some old person that's just going to be all upset by it. Be careful not to offend your brother. Exercise it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn him uh, self and what he approves. Now, here's the key verse, verse 23. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats. If you build a habit of doing things regularly that you know are not right, if you regularly water down the Sabbath and you watch kind of wild shows or any kind of worldly entertainment on the Sabbath, ball games or some old movie or anything else on the Sabbath, you begin to sear your soul. If you regularly drink too much, even though you're not drunk, you drink too much, you are scarring the mental tissue of your brain. You're conditioning your mind to do the wrong thing. If you regularly try to use excuses and you will not tithe to the God who gives you life and breath and gives you every dollar you make, gives you every breath you breathe, and you begin to sear your mind, to sear your soul by compromising, 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 you see what you do. You're gradually cutting yourself off from God by doing those things that you know are wrong. He who doubts is condemned, or as the old King James has, I think one of them has it, is damned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. Whatever you do, know that you're doing what God says. For the key verse is, for whatever is not from faith is sin. If you constantly compromise and you deliberately do, I don't mean that you get careless and you really forgot and you, I remember you, you hit your, if you're a new convert, let's say, in God's church. I'm not, so I can't do that. But if you're a brand new convert, let's say you're a carpenter and uh, you hit your thumb real hard. And you have a very rich vocabulary. <laughs> you, you, you can repent, say, I'm sorry. I'm not supposed to cuss, but I've been cussing all my life until God, you're sorry right then and quit cussing. He understands that. He understands that. But you're to condition your mind by growing in grace and in knowledge to where you don't do that. I always remember the summer of 1949. I worked up in this Anderson Ranch Dam up in, up in Idaho. And we were surrounded up there by Mormons. Most of them are nice family people, but they, they were human, you know, and they didn't understand God's word as we do. And the foreman of this maintenance crew that I worked on was a Mormon bishop. But when he hit his thumb with a hammer, he said the same words that all the guys I'd worked for back in Joplin said. <laughs> he had a rich vocabulary, so he didn't really have the fear of God in the way we do. But we should have the fear of God. We should not talk like that. And certainly we should not make excuses when we do slip and think evil thoughts and have lustful thoughts or vain thoughts or hateful thoughts. We should repent right then and not ever deliberately do what we know is wrong. Not ever deliberately do what we know is wrong. Because if you sin willfully... After you have received the knowledge of the truth, there's no forgiveness. I think that's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Don't deliberately do what's wrong, but don't water it down by kind of excusing yourself. You are searing your conscience when you do that. You are searing your conscience every time you water things down. Whatever is not of faith is sin. That's what God says. I didn't say that. 
So, brethren, I want you to understand if you're really preparing to be a king or a priest, if you want to be in God's kingdom, if you want to be a leader in God's kingdom, don't water things down. Take it seriously. Let Christ truly live his life in you so that you do have the right approach in all these things. And God will certainly bless you in every way if you do that. And I want to really help you understand that. Now, let's go to... uh, Matthew uh, 20, if you would, at this point. Matthew chapter 20. I had my watch all turned around, and I wondered what time it was. Now I know. (laughs) Anyway, Matthew chapter 20, and let's begin in verse uh, 25. Matthew chapter 20. Here is a familiar scripture, I hope, to all of us. The disciples have been arguing about who is the greatest... And so Jesus called them to himself. Matthew 20, 25. And Jesus said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Some of you older brethren remember the various torch-led ceremonies where Adolf Hitler would get up there and the march troops would march and Sig Heil, Sig Heil. And they worshipped him. And Mussolini would get out on that balcony, you know, overlooking one of the palazzos there in, in Rome. And they'd say, Viva il Duce, Viva il Duce. Long live the Duce, Mussolini. And he strutted around and so on all over the place, trying to show how great they were. And they were constantly oppressing the people under them. Anyone who crossed them would often be taken out and shot right then or beaten or thrown in prison the rest of their lives. That was the attitude. We're ruling over you with vigor. And those who are great exercise authority over them. That's what they do in the Gentile world even today as a whole. Yet it shall not be so among you, Jesus said. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. I want to, I don't think any of you are thinking this way, but I just was something. Mr. Armstrong, when frankly, was the greatest servant in the church of God when he was alive. Because he was teaching us the truth and a way of life beyond what any other man had done for hundreds of years. But Mr. Armstrong would thunder out the truth and to say, I don't think even half of you people are converted. Was he ruling over us with rigor? No. He didn't fire us. He didn't kick us out of the church. <laughs> you get the point? He was trying to help us. He was trying to wake us up before it was too late. And they still didn't listen. So that after he died, about 90% did leave the church of God. And the truth, they weren't listening. He said, brethren, I don't think you get it. And a lot of them did not get it. I knew that. I knew it better than most because I'd been over the visiting program overall there. And I had others under me directly talking, but I counseled a lot of people too. And I had various elders who were cussing or telling dirty jokes or doing worse. Some were smoking. Some were getting drunk. Elders, deacons, leaders in the church, department heads. Taking it easy, watering things down. Ha ha, we're the macho men. Oh yeah? What does God say? What does God say? What's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of God, the awe of the great creator of heaven and earth, who could bring down fire from heaven and wipe me out just like that. The awe of that great God is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of understanding. It's put all three ways there in the book of Proverbs. So we need to think about that, to have that fear of God, the awe of God, not to water things down, but to show God that we really believe him. We believe this book. We're willing to live by every word of God. We're willing to apply this to our lives and learn the laws and learn the statutes and learn the way of life that God spells out in the Bible so we can teach, really teach that way of life in tomorrow's world to try to learn what good music is all about, to try to learn what good entertainment is all about, to try to read Dr. Fall's excellent book on trial rearing and watch others who have good children and see how they do it and learn to do better. If you've failed, some of you older people, I don't think anyone's failed utterly, But none of us have done as well as we should learn to do better. So if we're given a chance in tomorrow's world, we will do better. Keep growing and growing and growing in that way of life so you can sincerely, earnestly, 
capably impart that way of life to your city, to your kingdom in tomorrow's world where you are a king or a priest under Jesus Christ. That's what we've all got to be willing to do. So we've got to be willing to do it. So he said, it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. I've talked in the past several times about servant leadership. Brethren, all these things ought to be done. Even when we minister to correct you, it ought not to be done how great we are. But how much can we help you? How can we wake you up before it's too late? If you're teaching your children, are you trying to yell at them to show you can show your power? Most of you men have enough sense not to do that. You have a two little helpless two or three year old boy or girl. You know you could kill them quickly with your own hand. Just hit them once or throw them through a wall. You normally don't have that attitude towards your own children. But you know that you've got to sometimes speak sharply to them or chasten them so they won't kill themselves, in effect. So they won't kill themselves. I might have have looked harsh to some people going by. I don't think it was necessarily perfect, but my son Jim is not here. I think his wife is here. His daughter's here, but you could tell Jim about it. You know, she's here, Susan. But at any rate, uh, he could tell you when the children, my older children were little, we lived on South Orange Grove Avenue, 268 South Orange Grove, one of those college homes along there. And they later had a freeway over to the east running along, which took more of the traffic. But for several years, uh, South Orange Grove Boulevard was like a freeway. The cars were just rushing up and rushing back and back and forth over and over. They were breaking the law, but somehow they didn't get stopped very much. They were going 45, 55, some of them even 60 miles an hour. It was dangerous. So I took Elizabeth, my daughter, yes, nice little girl, I love her, and Mike, my older son, and Jim, my younger son. I took them right out there on the grass strip before the cars, just three or four feet before you get right into the traffic. And say, you see those cars coming? Because the kids would sneak out of the yard. I saw them playing out there and starting to run out into the road a few times. I thought, ghastly, they're going to die. So I see that car, that's a big car. That car, if you step out there, look at it, look at it. I kind of hold them close, going to hit you. Bang, you'll be dead. And I went like that to try to scare the fire out of them. (laughs) And I think I did, because none of them ever got killed, at least. And I'm thankful for that. Was I mean? Was I trying to show off how great I was? No, I wasn't thinking about that at all. I knew I was bigger than they did. I didn't have to prove that. I had nothing to prove but to try to keep them alive a few more years until they could realize how dangerous that is. We did have one or two people killed, of course, in Pasadena uh, every year or two, for every year probably, from traffic just like that. So I tried to do that. But do it in love. Your point is not showing how great you are, but to serve. Whatever you do, do it to serve, not to show your greatness. So let him be your servant. Let him be your slave. And as the Son of Man, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That is the attitude we've got to have. These poor people are going to come back, streaming back from slavery, and they're going to be crying And they're going to be hurting in a hundred different ways. And we've got to help them. And in love. In an attitude of service. Turn now, if you would, to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah, brethren. Jeremiah chapter 31. This is definitely talking. If you go back to chapter 30 of Jeremiah, you'll see it's talking about modern Israel. And going into the time of Jacob's trouble and uh, how bad that is and how God then is going to bring them back and put David over them. And the last verse of chapter 30, in the latter days you will consider it. And then chapter 31, remember these books were divided into chapters by the editors later on. They didn't have chapters as God inspired them. At the same time, says the Eternal, I will be the God to all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Then he shows what's going to happen, how they're going to go into slavery, and all these troubles will come. So then he says, going back again to where we were going to pick the story flow up here to save time in chapter uh, 31 and verse 7. For thus says the ever-living one, 
Sing with gladness for Jacob. Shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O eternal, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country. They're going to be taken up to Germany and perhaps areas of Eastern Europe as well as slaves up north of Palestine and gather them from the ends of the earth. And as they come streaming back with tears in their eyes from the concentration camps, among them will be the blind and the lame. When Dick Armstrong and I first went to Europe in 1954, it was nine years after the war. But, brethren, I can tell you sincerely with all my heart, I never began to see anything like that before or since. For it seemed like every other man, especially the men, they had an ear blown off or their nose was partly blown off. One eye was closed. Part of their face was burned or a missing arm or leg. All through that nation, they had been utterly crushed by the American bombers by day and the British bombers by night. They were blown to bits. And the women also had had horrible things happen to them. They hadn't been killed and maimed quite to the same degree because most of them hadn't been in the front lines. But it was a terrible time. That's what's going to happen to our neighbors. We have wonderful neighbors where I live. I try to talk to them once in a while, but they don't really get it. God has to call them, but he's going to bring them back from this captivity. Finally, if they live through the tribulation, the blind and the lame, the woman with child and the one who labors with child together, a great throng will return. They shall come with weeping and supplications. Oh, God, we wish we'd listened. Please have mercy. They're going to be so scared. And some of them will be hurting physically from wounds and having a hard time walking. Some of them may be starving. They don't have enough food. They'll need help. Every kind of help. Physical help, mental help, emotional help. And we should be there to help them. And we're not like the government who says, I come here to help you. I want more of your tax money. But to really help them with all our hearts, we want to help you. And the one who labors with the child together, they'll return. And they'll come with weeping and supplications. I'll cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I'm a father to Israel and Ephraim. Ephraim was not Jacob's firstborn. Reuben was. But Reuben blew it. He turned away from God, and God says, Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the works of the Lord, word of the Lord, O nation, declare it to the isles and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him. God will bring back our neighbors. God will bring back our unconverted families if they're still living through this tribulation. I will gather them and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. You see, in love. For the eternal has redeemed Jacob, ransomed him from the hand of strong, stronger than he. Therefore, they shall come and sing. Finally, they're going to rejoice as God brings them back and blesses them. And we will say, we're here to help you. It's okay, John. It's okay, Mary. We love you. We're going to teach you a way of life that can give you happiness. Come on. We have plenty of food. We have nice people over here. And some of us are spirit beings. We'll explain that to you later. <laughs> we're here to help you, though. And we will help them. We won't crush them. We have the attitude to help. So they'll be streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and wine, plenty of food for the young and the flock and the herd. You see, God is not against eating meat. They're going to have plenty of meat from the flock and the herd. Their souls shall be like well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. God will bless them, and God will encourage them. No more sorrow. When they're brought back and we help them, serve them, help them, teach them God's way of life. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, the young men and old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy. There will be dancing. There will be eating of meat and drinking of wine. There will be joy, God's way. But we will have to teach them the way of life that brings that joy. That is our opportunity. That is our challenge. That is our calling. That's why you are called now to help you teach those people and to know how to teach them the truth, the way of life in tomorrow's world. Now, brethren, let's turn, if you would, uh, to uh, back here to Psalm 72. Give the king your judgments, O God. This is a psalm of the Christ. Even the editors of the Bible put this in here. And your righteousness to the king's son. 
He, Christ, will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Yes, our government is going to be with righteousness and justice under the direction of Jesus Christ as King of Kings. And he will guide us. The mountains will bring forth peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the people, the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and break in pieces the oppressor. We will have that honor. We're going to be able to break in pieces the oppressor and bind their kings and nobles with iron. As it says in Psalm 149, this honor have all his saints. They shall fear you. They're going to have a deep awe for God and for Christ. As long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations, he shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, the righteous shall flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. Forever and ever, a time of peace, a time of joy. He says in verse 11, yes, all kings will fall down before him. He's the king of kings. All nations shall serve him, for he will deliver the needy when he cries. God has concern for the poor. God has genuine concern for the little guy, not just taxing those who are successful and knocking them down and then give them so much from the government so they get them on the government dole and get control of them so they get their vote in the next election. That will have nothing to do with it. They will be helping and serving these people. And that will be the motive, and they'll do it in a way that teaches them then how to live, teaches them how to have a successful way of life and to be prosperous on their own. He will deliver the needy, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy. He will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence. And I'll tell you, when you read what's happening even today, over in the Middle East and around the world, how people are being tortured, they're being blown up. Sophisticated tortures are getting into, I understand, in Syria right now with people, men and women. Better not describe it. And precious shall be their blood in his sight. It says here then, uh, he shall live and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer will be made for him continually and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth. God will bless the earth with rain and due season on the top of the mountains. And his name shall endure forever. All nations shall be blessed. Verse 18 now. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who only does wondrous things. Only God can do these things. He does them through us, though, brethren, in tomorrow's world. Many of them, if we're willing... If we prepare ourselves, he's watching to see how we learn this way of life. Then he will know how much we will respond and carry out his government, carry out his instruction and teach and train and administer in that way of life in tomorrow's world. That's what we're training to do right now. Blessed be the God of Israel. Blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Let's do that. Let's prepare. This is why you were called now.